was it that God used to bring you and your family to the Lord? We know the Holy Spirit starts this whole thing, and He puts in our hearts or our in our spirit, a desire for Him, an interest when we hear the Gospel, a hunger for the Bible. But who are the people that He used? Who are the people that He used to bring your people to the Lord? There's a pastor whose name is Ray Cummins. And Ray was the pastor of a little Baptist church in the mountain town in Kentucky. And he was just an unusually Parson-like pastor. He didn't just hole up in his study all the time. He got out and he went around town, walking up and down the streets, uh, announcing the basketball game, taking care of people. He liked people if they had money. He liked people if they didn't have money. He cared about people that were church people. And he cared about people that were no way church people. And the people that lived across the creek, some of you know this story, they weren't church people at all. They were, they were kind of ashamed of some of the things that had happened in their family, so they were, they were not church people. But they didn't keep Pastor Cummings from going across the creek. He sent his boy across the creek with a gift, a food, a gift of love, a Christmas gift, a gift of candy for the kids that lived across the creek, one of whom was your pastor's wife. So when I think of Ray Cummings, a man I've never met, but I talked to him on the phone a few times, he's a part of our family history. He's one of the people God used who cared about those people that lived on the other side of the creek from the church who were no way church people. And at least one of those people, that little, little girl, had a stirring of the Holy Spirit in her heart. And God used other people. Who did he use for you? Who did he use? Oh, to be people like that. But to be the kind of people that are used to reach other people, you've got to be willing to go across the creek. And sometimes the people that live on the other side of the creek are so different. Sometimes they're downright ugly. In this case, they were beautiful. But in some cases, they're downright ugly. In some cases, they're downright pagan (laughs) some cases they're kind of in your face ugly about it how do you treat people that are kind of in your face ugly they don't love you they don't love or revere your god they have their own god and it's not your god it's not the god of the bible maybe they even like openly campaign against your god how do you treat people like that how do you treat people like that do you just avoid them well, I'm just going to have my own little culture where I live, and hopefully I don't have to get around those people, those pagans. You could avoid them. Another thing you could do is you could, you could go on the offense. You could attack them. You know, you could, like, get petitions going and elect your kind of people and make it illegal for them to do the stuff that they do and maybe kind of create a Christian America. What do you think? Attack them. Maybe even... Maybe even, you know, if you got the upper hand, you could physically attack them. You're laughing, but that's common in history of the world. People that don't believe the way I believe, if I get the upper hand, if I'm stronger than, I, than they are, if there's more of us than are them, then we'll just take over. <laughs> Is that what we're supposed to do? Or maybe we could just make lots of laws and rules, or, 
Or maybe we could just like give in and join them, kind of have a Christian version of pagan. <laughs> and maybe that'd be easier. Just kind of call whatever they're doing okay and kind of baptize it. Where did I get those ideas? <laughs> those were four different approaches that Jewish people used in the time of Christ to deal with the pagans that lived all around them. Now Jesus, if you can imagine, the one thing that's beautiful about Jesus, he's the kind of guy that inspires guys like Pastor Cummins to love people that live across the creek. Because he, is, he loves without partiality. And he never joins anybody else's party. <laughs> they have the zealot party. Attack them. They had the Essene party, go live in a cave. They had the Pharisee party, make rules. They had the Sadducee party, just join them. And and the big deal was, which party was Jesus going to join? Because now he's got a following because he's healing people and because he's delivering people from demons and he's forgiving people their sins. His teaching is amazing like no one has ever taught. So whose party is he going to be in? Is he going to be a zealot, an Essene, a Pharisee, a Sadducee? Which is he going to be? Who's right? Who is Jesus going to endorse? And in beautiful form, what does Jesus do? He does his own. <laughs> he does his own thing. He's the king of the universe. And he does something completely different. And he goes to the place where the pagans live. Now there's a place called Decapolis. It's a, it's a region of, of ten cities. As a matter of fact, if my little map works right, yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. There's a map. You can tell by looking at it, it's a map, but you can't tell anything about it. You would have to go to the Holy Land. Did I tell you I... <laughs> yeah, told you I went there. And we went, to this <laughs> we went to this place. Does this map make any sense to anybody here? There's a little body of water there. See my little cool... There, see it? This is the first for me I'm pointing with a little red dot. Pretty slick, huh? It's over here, too. This is the Sea, <laughs> this is the sea of Galilee. And up in here... That's like the evangelical triangle. This is where Jesus adopted a hometown and where Jewish people tended to cluster here. And he did all of his miracles in ministry. Then he went up into the region of Tyre and Sidon and he healed the demon-possessed daughter of the Syrophoenician widow. Then he comes down along this side of the lake over into here into the region of the Decapolis. This is where the bad people lived. This is just where the, un, this is where the unrighteous people live. This place was especially known for the Hellenistic influence, the Greek influence. And that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound too bad. It sounds all kind of uh, cultural. It's not good. These people had lewd sexual practices. These people had many gods. It's like, pick your own god. They had theaters where they had plays where their gods were like men who did immoral things and women who did immoral things. It was not good. And that led to immoral living. They had Olympics where people would, would uh, compete without clothing on, which is obviously wrong. And so the Jewish people rightfully were like, well, we want to, you know, this is not good. And so some of them, again, the, the zealots said, we'll fight against this. We'll resist this. This isn't going to happen. And the Essenes says, we'll go live in a cave. We'll get away from this. And the Pharisees said, we've got to have more rules. And the Sadducees said, we're going to have to get along with them. And Jesus comes and he says, we're going to go in among them. And he starts by taking his disciples away. As you remember, this was the Mother's Day message. He takes his disciples away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he heals a Gentile woman's daughter. He delivers her of demon possession. And then it's kind of like to the disciples, he goes, did you guys see that? And he gives this woman all the arguments that would have been kind of boiling in the disciples' hearts at the time. He's not really going to help a Gentile lady. We're not supposed to hang out with these people. And so he uses these 
he, they're listening, and this is intentional. And while he uses the thoughts probably that are boiling in their hearts and minds, he uses these same questions on the lady. And then the lady, remember what she says? She says, can we even have, this is going to be important today, crumbs from the table? Before that, Jesus had fed the 5,000. And it was the people from that, those, those cities, those Jewish uh, cities that came for that feeding of the 5,000. And they came across Jordan. This was the spring of the year, grass growing. But now in our text today, there's going to be another feeding. This is the feeding of the 4,000. There are critics of the Bible who aren't paying careful attention, I think, who they see two different feedings, one of 5,000, one of 4,000. And you know what they say? Oh, you know, they were confused and they got their numbers wrong. And so it was the same story, but with different numbers. Well, that shows a lot of ignorance because if you just if you're just a common person and you read the story very carefully, it's very significant, very artful. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using a brilliant literary device in order to teach something. Jesus has taught his disciples that the Gentiles are not that Jesus that God is going to treat the Gentiles in love without partiality, even though they're far from God and they worship the wrong gods. That he is going to win, he's going to bring Gentiles to himself. In chapter eight, it says he said, in, Jesus said in chapter eight of Matthew that in the time to come, in the kingdom to come, Gentiles are going to come from all over and they're going to sit down at the banquet and eat. And they're going to be children of Abraham that don't get in on the banquet. Jesus said that himself. It's recorded there in Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 8, uh, verse 11. So Jesus is uh, not subtly, but you know, we're kind of slow learners. His disciples are kind of slow learners. Not subtly. Jesus just keeps teaching. So he heals this, um, he heals the, the son of a Gentile, and he says, there are going to be Gentiles who come and eat with the Father in the kingdom. And there will be Jews who don't make it in. And then now he goes over to Tyre and Sidon. There's a Syrophoenician woman, very Gentile. He heals her. He teaches his disciples. Now he's going to take his disciples with him as they go down the, the east coast of the Sea of Galilee, right into the heart of the Decapolis. Some people believe that when the prodigal son, the story that Jesus made up of the prodigal son going into a far country, that this was the country where he went. Remember, it was a place where there were pigs, Remember that? Because Jesus went there before. He went across the lake with his disciples and he cast demons out of two men. One of them we call the maniac of Gadara. And they cast the demons into the pigs. And the pigs went in the sea. Remember the town said, we'll take the pigs, not Jesus. Jesus, go away. We want our pigs. Remember that? This was the region of the Decapolis. This was bad news. This was a place, good Jewish boys stayed away from a place like this. Jesus went and he took his disciples and he went down along the Golan Heights and he went right down into the heart of the paganist of the paganist places. And what did he do? Did he cry out against them and tell them how pagan they were? What did he do? Did he do that? Let's take our Bible to look at Matthew 15. I'll show you what he did. Let's read the story. It's Matthew 15, verses 32 through 39. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself. He said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint in the way. We understand by comparing, you understand Matthew's account of this and Mark's account of this, that it is in the Decapolis where Jesus is. It's in the region of the ten Hellenistic Greek cities. So if you compare the two accounts, you get the geography there. 
And so now what do we have? We have a huge group of people that have come to hear Jesus and to be healed by Jesus and to have demons cast out, and they've been there a long time, and they're hungry. Does this sound familiar to anyone? And now it's in, a, it's in a desolate region. It's not the spring of the year now. It's a desolate region. There's nothing to eat. Verse 33, then the disciples came to him. Um, his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Again, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. Seven loaves and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks and he broke them. And they gave them to his disciples. Now, can I ask you a question? When I get to this part of the story and I read this, what does this remind you of? I'm going to read it again. I'm going to ask you, what does this remind you of? It should remind you of a couple of things. I'm going to read it again. He took the seven loaves and fish and he gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples. What does that remind you of? Gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples. It does two things. The first feeding of the 5,000. What else does that sound like? If I stand down here, will it remind you? Yeah, it sounds like communion, doesn't it? Matthew, choosing his words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit very carefully, is kind of echoing the communion service here. And he's saying, Jesus went and he fed the Jewish people. And the Jewish people go, of course he did, because he loves us. We're so special, you know. And Jesus went to the pagans like, what's he going to do over there? He's going to feed them too. Are you kidding me right now? Jewish people eating with Gentiles, does he realize what they do? Does he realize the, the lives they live? Does he realize how ugly their lives are? And he's, gonna, he's not going to just preach at them. He's going to go and eat with them. Is this, are you kidding? So why, do the, why are the disciples so slow on the uptake? Why don't they go, oh, I know how this goes. You can heal the, you can raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons, make bread, make some bread now. And these guys, they're great guys, but they really are slow learners. You're going to see later on in the stories, they still don't get it. Jesus gets almost frustrated with them, like, you're so twisted and perverted, you don't even get this. <laughs> He's going to say that to them later on. It's like, how many times do I have to make bread before you realize I'm the kind of guy that makes, makes bread when people are hungry. I'm the kind of guy that makes wine when people are thirsty. I'm the kind of guy that makes bread when people are hungry. Because I like them. Because I don't like them to be hungry. Because I care about them. And because they listen better on a full stomach, I think. Right? Because he's going to tell them life-giving words. We'll get to that. And so he performs the miracle for them like he performed for his own people. He performs the miracle for Gentile people. Now, one of the reasons we know these are Gentile people is a little subtlety in the text. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000 a few chapters earlier, what's interesting is it says they gathered up the baskets, and they were little baskets, like lunch baskets. And how many of them were there? Twelve, you're right. Now he's going to gather up the baskets here, and they're not little baskets, they're big baskets. The same word is used in the book of Acts for the basket they let the Apostle Paul down over the wall in. This is a big basket. Or Paul was a very, very small man, right? It was a big basket. These are large baskets. And how many of them are there? Leftovers are in how many baskets? Seven. What's the significance of the seven? That's kind of interesting because we're going to kind of like use our imagination here. But in the scriptures, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in the book of Acts, it says this is a region where there were 
the remnants of seven different nations. It's almost like Jesus is saying, I'm going to welcome people from any one of those seven nations and from any one of those 12 tribes. I'm opening my compassion up to anyone who, in whom the Holy Spirit is working. And the first thing he does to show him love is he feeds him. I got a call this week from a guy named John Newman. John is a young guy, not married yet, 31 or 2 years old, lived a super like, rough life, and got like, beautifully saved. He lives in Rochester, New York, and he got beautifully saved. His life was just totally changed. He got really uh, going. And he had no money, he had nothing, he kind of had background in drugs and just different things like that. He really messed up his life. And he found out about this little Bible college in Rochester, New York, and he called me and he said, I'm coming to your Bible college. I don't have any money. And I don't have a transcript from high school, and I don't have any recommendation from people, but if I have to camp out on your front lawn, I'm bringing a tent, and I'm going to Bible college. And, and to their credit, the people there said, this guy's got something going for him. So they said, all right, you come, and we'll work it out. And God provided for him to live in a beautiful home. He didn't have to tent. And he graduated. I saw, he's calling the phone. We talked for quite a while, and then I watched his message online, watched part, most of his message online but I said to him also, I like guys like you. I'm curious about guys like you. He is uh, into evangelism. He is into evangelism. He wants to win people to the Lord. So I said, well, I'm curious about guys like you. What, how do you do evangelism? How do you do this? And I'm not saying that this is the way that you should do it at all. I'm not saying that at all. That, you know, we've talked frequently about ways that you can do evangelism, like relational evangelism, and, and we're going to keep talking about that. We'll never stop. Until the balcony's full, then we fill it again, you know, right? We're just going to keep on because there are still people that live across the creek and Jesus loves them and we should love them too, right? You with me on this? I knew you would be. And, it's, and you know God's doing that right now in our church. Just a little at a time, he's doing this. And there's the sweetest stories, right? They're just the sweetest stories. So I said to John, how do you do it? And he goes, well, I don't know how to do it. You know, I just knew that there was a neighborhood that was a really rough, dangerous neighborhood. There's a local, <laughs> a local pastor that lived there. He gave his testimony. He said, this guy was crazy. I told him, you're going to get killed. They will kill you. And he goes, well, you know, it's a great cause I would die for. And he goes into this neighborhood. It's a really rough neighborhood. And it's hot. It's in the summertime. And he wants to witness. He wants to talk to them about the Lord. So you know what he does? He says, I just, I didn't have a lot of money, so I just went and bought as much water. I went to like Walmart, Sam's Club. I bought as much water as I could get, bottled water. And then I put it on ice. I put it, on, I put it in the fridge until it was cold. And then I, on a real hot day, I just went down there with a big wagon of cold water, and I went on the street, and when they came and got water, I talked to them about the Lord. I'm like, well, that's probably like a lame way of doing it, but does that remind you of anything here? He looks at people who are thirsty. He gives them water. He tells them how his life was changed. Jesus looks at people who are hungry. He naturally cares about them. He likes them. He loves them. He doesn't want them to faint in the way, on the way home. So he feeds them, but he's got this other thing going where he's going to miraculously feed them. So that's going to be the most loving thing. Is like they're going to get hungry again, but when they realize that he's the kind of guy who can miraculously feed you, they might think there's something special about him. They're going to listen to his message. He's going to deliver them. He's not going to just condemn them for their sin. He's going to deliver them from their sin. Any self-respecting Baptist would have lit it up right there. That's the place, right? Lois tells me I'm not to tell you when to say amen, so I'm not telling you you should have said amen right there. I'm not going to say that. Isn't that exciting when you think about it? God says, um, it's sin. You know it's sin. You know it's wicked. 
You know it's dark. You know you feel ashamed. Sometimes you don't even want to come to church because of your shame. He's not going to come and just leave you in that sin and let you wallow in that terrible sin. He's going to deliver you from that sin. That's why we preach against the sin, because He can deliver you from the sin. And then you can have one God instead of a pagan. You're a follower of the one true God. And this is what Jesus did. What's curious to me, what's interesting, which is kind of a beautiful little subtle literary thing, which I love to find in the Bible. As I studied this, I thought, isn't it interesting that Jesus goes into Tyre and Sidon, he goes to this woman, and she says, can I just have some crumbs off the table? And he goes, crumbs? I will show you crumbs. And then a few days later, he goes here to the region where the Gentiles live, and they walk away with seven baskets full of fresh, divinely prepared, miraculously made bread from Jesus. And a memory they will never forget. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You get that? You get the beauty of that? The Spirit of God has this wonderful literary style, doesn't he? Can we have a few crumbs? I'll show you crumbs. I'm going to give you bread till you walk away with huge baskets full of the bread. That's who I am. Do you believe who I am? So it's so beautiful when you think of this. I, I, uh, I want you to notice something here. There's a sin that the Bible specifically condemns. It's the sin of partiality. It's treating people differently. And, and the Bible's very clear. It's really about the sin of partiality. An example of this is Cornelius. He's not a Jewish guy. I, can't, I, I don't have time to tell you the whole story because I made promises that I would quit by 3 o'clock today. So Acts chapter 10 tells this story. And Acts chapter 10 is like God gets a hold of Peter and he says to Peter, hey, you're going to the Gentiles. But he tells Peter in a really unusual way. He doesn't want you to eat unclean meat. And Peter's like, I am not going to do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't do that kind of thing. And then God sends down the, 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 has, a, has a vision where the unclean meat comes down from heaven. Peter's like, God forces Peter to go to the Gentiles. He prepares this guy Cornelius. And Cornelius gets saved, and then what happens, go ahead and look in Acts chapter 10, because you want to see this part. One of the best ways God shows that he shows no partiality is he gives his best gifts to people who don't even love him and don't even know him like the sun and the rain. Isn't that what Jesus said? Be like me, I give the sun and the rain to people who who don't even believe in me. When... Cornelius and his household get saved, what happens? It's like they have their own, and this isn't quite theologically precise, but it's just kind of a, a way to say it. They have their own little Pentecost. They have their, there's only one Pentecost, but they have their own little manifestation of the Pentecost for the Gentile people. Like the Jews had their Pentecost. Of course, that was quite, the nations were there too at the day of Pentecost, right? There were nations there. That's the whole thing about tongues. They get heard, they spoke in their languages. And here in chapter 10, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. (laughs) That's kind of humorous, right? Who is the circumcision? Jewish people. They were what? Surprised. They're like, of course we got the Holy Spirit. We're Jewish people. But these guys are, (laughs) they got like naked Olympics. They're not going to get the Holy Spirit. Right? They got, they got lewd practices. They got many gods. Those people are bad to the bone. They're not going to get the Holy Spirit. They got the Holy Spirit. And they got the Holy Spirit just like... They didn't get the discount Holy Spirit. They got the Holy Spirit just like all the Jews got the Holy Spirit. And they had the manifestation of things that were miraculous. That's just kind of neat, isn't it? Which is kind of good because how... I mean, how many of you are Jewish here today, right? Right? So it's kind of good. Are you glad that Gentiles can get the Holy Spirit too? 
Yes, amen. Thank you, Lord. So the Spirit of God that saved us and all the things today, which our service was laden with all this wonderful theology of the sweet things the Holy Spirit does. We don't want to resist Him. We don't want to grieve Him. We don't want to quench Him because He's going to pour forth gifts with all partiality to us who are Gentiles. Whew, that's cool. Makes me want to cross the creek. How about you? Does it make you want to cross the creek? Does it make you want to cross the creek and get the people who are like a little bit scary? Does it make you want to love people who are a little bit scary, who don't love your God? People that are kind of in your face, people that are kind of weird, people that have kind of been beat up by sin. Does it make you want to cross the creek? Well, if you're not going alone, the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is stirring that little girl who lives with that alcoholic dad across the street. Someday she's going to be a pastor's wife. She's going to have eight kids who love Jesus. Can you imagine how wonderful, how did that pastor, he would never have known when he sent his little boy across the creek to that, that the Spirit of God was already working over there across the street. I went to that church. They asked me to preach. I asked to study in this study the night before. 1980, it was January 1st, 1980, remember this was? I went up in that little study and there was a little card catalog there. The Southern Baptists have a program for Sunday school where they enlist you, they enroll you in Sunday school the first time you come. You're not a member of the church, but you're enrolled in Sunday school. And if you're enrolled in a Southern Baptist Sunday school, the only way to get out is to absolutely demand that they drop your name. That's their program. Seriously. I said, I wonder if that was true here. And I opened that little card file. And I went back to the hat and to the H's. And you know what? Ralph and Aline and their family were still on the rolls of the Sunday school because Pastor Cummings believed that you go across the creek to love people, even if they're not like the finest folk in town, like Dad's the alcoholic of town. (laughs) That's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? Who do you know that lives across the creek? God says don't show any partiality. Oh, what our lives would be like when we stop showing partiality and just love the people across the creek. His spirit is given without partiality. James chapter 1, you know, they still let somebody come in your church and they're like, oh yeah, look, that guy looks like he has some money, so we're going to treat him really, really nice. That's the James 2 passage, and you want to study that there on your own. But here we have, he took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks and he broke them and he gave to his disciples. Disciples gave to the multitude, and they were all ate and were filled. That's, in the original language, that's they were stuffed. <laughs> they were like groaning stuffed. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. And these who ate were 4,000 men besides, besides women and children. How do you treat pagans then? How should we treat pagans? Well, first of all, you don't call them pagans, right? <laughs> Yeah, I love you, even though you're a pagan. I mean, even, you know, it's just, we're using that, we're using that for a little placeholder. We, we don't call them names. We don't throw rocks at them. We, we, we gotta be careful that while we help them understand their sin, that they're not hearing a message kind of like, you're a sinner, I'm not a sinner. Let me tell you how you can be a wonderful, enlightened, non-sinner like me. Don't, don't call them pagans. That's not the thing. But how do you treat them? Well, let's base this on what Jesus did. What should we do when we're in a culture that's just crushing in on us with people who have other gods? A culture that's crushing in on us with evangelistic people who are evangelistic missionaries for other gods. And they do vile things and bad things and they hate our God and they hate us. How do you treat people like that? Well, like Jesus did, love them deeply. The Bible says here in this story, and it's not the first place that 
Jesus had compassion on them. That's the visceral word. It means he, he loved them from his guts. He had a deep compassion for them. He saw them and he really deeply loved them. So do you deeply love other people that are like the Gentiles to you, that are like the enemy to you, that are like the godless to you, that are like the... Do you deeply... I don't mean, you know, I'll tell you what I'll do. You know, I'll stand over here and I'll, I'll chuck gospel rocks at them. I don't want to get close or eat with them or anything. But if they want to be like me, they can come on over and I'll tell them how the game goes and give them the rules. Then they can join and after they get themselves all cleaned up, then maybe then maybe we will spend some time with them. Heard about a guy, a sweet guy. He said he went to a church, and he went to the church to a small group because he had a personal need, and a personal need was a small group based on his personal need. And he said he was among the group, and he's hanging out with them, and he kind of liked him. He thought maybe they loved him. And so he was excited about that. And he told them he's an artist, and he had some art that he was doing, a little art fair. And so he told them, he said, I'm going to be doing an art fair. And he told all of them where his little art fair was, his little art show was. And he looked at me, and you know what he said? He said, you know what? I thought they loved me, but none of them came. And when he told me the story, I, I just kind of winced because I thought, I wonder how many times I've said, hey, I love you, man. I just don't want to look at your artwork. I love you, but I'm, but I'm not going to eat with you. I love you, but your music's weird. But I love you. You know I, I love you like crazy. And then my heart says, do you love deeply from your insides like Jesus loved? Is there anybody here today that could not just fall on their face in repentance and say, God, help me to love deeply like you loved pagan people? Love them miraculously. You can't do this, but you can stay connected to the one who can. People don't just need food. They need miracles. They've got to be delivered from their sin. Salvation, sanctification, they need miracles. Jesus performed miracles for people. Guess what? He still performs miracles for people. And if he doesn't, they're still in their sin and their darkness and the condemnation that's on them because of their sin. But he can deliver them. But you've got to understand, while you're loving people deeply, Jesus is willing to do miracles for them. So the best way to treat a pagan is to pray in a miracle for them. That they would be, they would be delivered from their sin. All of a sudden, they never read before, and they find themselves reading their Bible. Remember a guy named Cliff? He was like, I don't read anything. He got saved. He goes, I don't know what has happened to me. His name was Cliff. He goes, I can't put my Bible down. I just read it all the time. He read through his whole entire Bible. <laughs> I was like, I'll tell you what happened. That was a miracle. The Holy Spirit's working in you. Do you love your Bible like that? Wouldn't it be exciting if you go across the creek, you meet some pagan over there. You don't call them pagan, but you meet a person that, you know, they're kind of like different than you. Maybe they don't love your God, know your God. They have their own gods. But you cross the creek, you get to loving on them, and you keep loving them, and you keep loving them, and you, you eat with them, and you go to their art show, and you love their kids, and you love them, and you love them, and you love them, and then a miracle happens. And then you love them abundantly, like in an overflowing abundance. <laughs> Do you notice in, your pa- in the passage there that there are, there's, in both of the feeding of the 5,000 and feeding of the 4,000, there's huge baskets to take home. Kind of neat, huh? I was speaking at a conference, and before I speak, I'm not hungry. If I spoke all the time, I'd be skinny. I was just not hungry. You don't want to eat anything because I'm going to speak. Then after I speak, (laughs) if you have food, you might want to hide it because I will eat it. As a matter of fact, I was sharing a room with a guy at this conference I was at one time, and I I got to the conference later, 
and they gave us one of those baskets. And I said, your room, and you have the little things in it. And, and uh, you look at that, and you're like, I'm not going to eat any of that. By the time I leave, it's all, I just said, gone, you know, just miraculously disappears. Um, and uh, I, I come in, the guy looks at me, and he goes, you're Ken Pierpont? I go, yep. He goes, you're speaking here? I go, yep. He goes, oh, pfft. 10 minutes, and I would have eaten the rest of your food. It would have been gone. <laughs> he would, I'm like, wow, great. I'm going to listen to your talk. Yeah, 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 steal my food. So after I got done... <laughs> I got done speaking. I was really hungry. And I'm like, okay, I've got to hike over to this place where they have the food. And I'm <laughs> really eager to eat. So I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder what they're going to have. You know, and I hope it's something I like. And it was, and they had, they had like wraps. They had like, after what they call them. But they, and they had avocado, uh, guacamole. I thought, yeah, that's, I heard that's really good for you. Super, super good for you. So I'm like, if it's really good for me, I should probably eat a lot of it. Not just a little. I'm like, so I'm like, yeah. And they had a guy, and they had people that were giving out the food, and they were giving out the food with little tiny spoons. Little tiny spoons, like, here. Here's your, and I'm like, look at me. Just look, look at me. I mean, here's a dainty little, you know, 95-pound woman goes through. She gets her little thing, you know, she's just chirpy and everything. She goes on, here I come. They give me the same amount of food as they gave to her. I'm like, do you have any idea what it takes to keep this going here? You know, so the guy gets this avocado dip, and he's got a little, you've seen an ice cream scooper, it's like that. This was like, I don't know where he got this. It was like a watermelon ball or thing or something. I'm serious. And he goes like this, and he goes, and I go, <laughs> I should never have asked, but I go, could I have some more? And he's like, well, uh, it's kind of early. After everybody eats, maybe you can come back. And I'm like, oh, never mind. That's, that's okay. It's like kind of avocado flavor. Now I'm here to tell you, Jesus is nothing like that. He's not limited in what he can do. He's not limited in what he can give. He's not limited in the way he wants to help you. He is the kind of one that would like, I'm like, I want him back there. Put it on there. Pour it on. When he makes bread, there's stuff left over afterward. <laughs> Baskets, gather it up, guys. The disciples, only like the disciples, like, I want you guys to gather. So the disciples are getting it in their mind. When Jesus does stuff, he does it right. The fish was good. The bread was good. And there was lots of extra left over. It was work to gather it all up. That's so awesome. I love that. I heard about a guy who started a department store in Philadelphia, Wanamaker. And years ago, he traveled to China on a mission. And there was a burgeoning, there was a growing Christian church in China. And the people across the Chinese countryside were building these churches. And there was a small village. They were really proud of their church. And they said, we want you to come and they want, we want you to see our church. It was modest, but they were really, really proud of their church. And they brought this American businessman, and they said, look at our church. And he said, it's beautiful. And, and then they pointed to a hillside. There was a hillside. There was a farmer, a peasant farmer on a hillside. He was plowing. And they said, we want to tell you the story of our church. You see that farmer on the hillside? And he looked, and he thought, oh, that's odd. Because the farmer was plowing with, with an ox and with a boy. A boy yoked up with an ox. He said, you know what happened? They said to the man, you know what happened? That boy, they got just so far with the church and they ran out of money. And the boy was burdened about how are we going to build this church? They didn't have the money. And the boy went home from church to his dad one day and he said to his dad, Dad, we have two cows. If you sell one and you give the money, they can finish the church and I will pull the 
<laughs> I won't pull the plow. Now, I wasn't there to see that. I don't know how true that is. It doesn't matter to me. I'll tell you what I have seen. I've seen what happens when people believe in something and they start to give and they invest and, and they, they really give. They, they really get into it and they give. Like one of our men here who had his sons mow the church lawn, I think for free for a long time. And the boys growing up, they weren't sure how excited they were about always mowing the church lawn. But somehow they got a sense of investment. It wasn't just that church on the corner. It was, that's my church. That's our church. Why? Because they, they had given. Because that's the way it is, where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. Do you understand? This is what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. That if we will love people deeply, draw them to a miracle-working God, and abundantly love them, abundantly love them, invest in them with our hearts, they're going to be our people. It's not going to be those people over there. They're going to be us, and we're going to be them. Heavenly Father, make this true, I pray, in our church. I pray that you make this true with each of us. Help me this week. I feel sad, Lord, how often I've loved people kind of at arm's length. Help me, I pray, to see the power of loving people the way you did. In Jesus' name, amen.